Listener supported. WNYC Studios. A co-presentation of WNYC Studios and Night Vale presents. You are listening to the Orbiting Human Circus of the Air. Well, hello. Dusk. We find the janitor high on the side of the Eiffel Tower, stringing up white paper decorations without scaffold harness or ropes to hold him. And the janitor is in a state of amazement. He has seen a single firefly up on the tower quite near him. Ah! He's never seen one alive this late in the year before. And never this high up. It's landed on a girder, and he stares at it as it's softly glowing on and off. How'd you get on top of the Eiffel Tower, huh? The janitor stops decorating, and, balancing dangerously, he leans over and cups both hands over the firefly. He lifts it up in front of his face and watches the spaces between his fingers glow. Look at you. He wonders how the firefly manages to live up here all alone. But looking at the space between his fingers light up, gives him the strangest feeling. You know how those moments when you remember that you love something? Yes, something that you'd forgotten all about. This could be a new memory. It could be. The janitor has given up recalling new things. I have all the memories I need. He doesn't want to. I've remembered as far as my great-grandfather's and I want to stay there. He doesn't like endings. And so he chooses not to remember. Or perhaps he's afraid to see how it all turned out. The janitor has recovered his memories chronologically. It's like his life is flashing in front of his eyes incredibly slowly. And he's making it even slower. So slow, in fact, he stopped the whole show. I just want to look at the firefly. But, if you hadn't run away, you wouldn't have the time at your great-grandfather's to remember. That's true. It took you a long time to get up the courage to run away from home, didn't it? Yes. And it took something very special to give you that courage. Uh Uh-huh. What was it? Well, you know. Yes, but I'm not the point. It was, of course, the janitor's habit as a child to find courage by pretending he was just a character in a story, and feeling this story's audience with him, perhaps even rooting for him, gave him the courage he needed to run away to Paris and find his great-grandfather. He also imagined a narrator, but I'm not taking credit for that one. Well, no offense, but you don't deserve it. Yes, well, for some reason, telling me what happened never was all that comforting. But he can tell them. They're here, aren't they? Yes. I'll leave you all alone. Wow, we got rid of him. Oh, here we are. Just us. We should have a party. It was such a good time. You know, my great-grandfather's. 
belonging there, feeling like I had a place there. You know, he always had these parties every night. I remember everyone was so nice to me. I remember once this this lady got down on the floor with me and we played marbles all night. And and I was even a little old for marbles and, and they were hers. I mean, she brought them. And like it was Greta Garbo. And then we would go out and he did these shows. Everyone would be there. People would recognize me from the parties and say hello. But the way that people looked at my great-grandfather when he came out, he was making a big, wonderful feeling for us all to be in. I would have given anything just to learn one of his secrets. He once told me this story, and I got really excited because it was about him when he was a little boy learning from his uncle. He said that when he was a little boy my age, he had an uncle who had a booth on the seaside, and um, he noticed that his uncle, the minute that he'd set up behind the counter of his booth, would get older, so much older. And then when he closed up for the night, he'd grow younger again. It seemed impossible, but he was sure of it. He thought it was interesting, so he started hiding and watching him. He wasn't supposed to be around there at all. The booth was in the red light district. He said that everything in that area was what you would call adult entertainment. Um, and he said that his uncle always said that his booth was adult entertainment, which of course made my great-grandfather very interested. And so at night when his uncle would open up the booth, my great-grandfather would always hide and watch. He'd unlock it and he'd start growing older. There was a sign above the booth in big bright lights. It said, your childhood bedroom, unchanged. He said that nobody ever went up to the booth except in the spirit of derision. That meant to laugh at it. He said the booth was full of stacks of shoeboxes from floor to ceiling. All these old shoeboxes. And they were all precarious and tipping all over the place. And that his uncle would be standing in the middle of it and that his hands would be shaking, and that he'd be tottering. And he said that people would come up laughing, and, and, and that his uncle would turn around and stare at them and point at one of the people. And he would always choose the person who was laughing the hardest. He said it was as if he was trying carefully to select the meanest one. And he would hold up his finger, and he would nod, as if he had just the right thing for that person. And then he'd turn around really slow, because he was so old. And he'd say, perhaps this is yours, in his sweet old man voice. And he would choose a shoebox, and he would take off the top, and he would set it down in front of the person. And it would be like a model of a child's bedroom, like made out of like toothpicks and, and little bits of fabric and, 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 you know, colored and, and everything with the roof taken off. And you would look down into it and it would be terrible, horrible. Like, you know, maybe as if it had once been good, like maybe once he could make those really nicely, but now his hands were shaking and he was just, you know, not able to do it anymore. And the person would start laughing hysterically when they looked down at it and they would show their friends and their friends would start laughing and, 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 and his uncle would look at them with a shocked look on his face, surprised. 
And this would make them laugh even louder. Because these were gangsters and people like that. Then he would put up his his finger and, she, and, and nod yes and, and, and he's got something and he would turn around and he would totter off and he would, he would go into the stacks of the, of the shoe boxes um, and you know he would pull one out and, and, and the whole stack would totter and his hand's shaking and he takes another one of the terrible shoe boxes and he just opens it up and puts it down in front of the person and he'd say perhaps this is yours and and now they'd be shaking with laughter. They'd all be completely in hysterics, the whole group of them. And um, then he'd turn around and he'd totter off and, and, and he'd go through the stacks and he'd pull out a shoebox and a whole stack would collapse and, and just shower the old man with shoeboxes and, and, and his uncle would kind of clamber out of them and he would open up one last shoebox and he'd put it down in front of the person and he'd say, maybe this one is yours. And the person would stop laughing. Because inside that box was their childhood. The place they would go. The things that they loved that they never could tell anyone about. But in every detail, even the smells would be perfect. They would flop down like wooden puppets on the counter they would put their whole faces in the shoebox. He said it was grotesque. And their friends, like all these tough guys, would become afraid. Grandpa said he could see it in their faces, and they would back away. They'd call to their friend, and their friend wouldn't answer. They'd try pulling them away, and they couldn't budge them, and they didn't know what to do, and so they eventually just leave them there. And then my great-grandpa said that his uncle's hand stopped shaking. And he'd reach over his customer whose face was still buried in the shoebox and he'd take out their wallet and remove all the money from it. He would slowly lift the person up and just give them a little push towards the sea. And off they'd go, face still on the box. They never came back, neither did their friends. His uncle told him that they'd bought their future. And he said not only that, but they would disappear. Their friends never saw them again. And my great-grandpa would ask if it was because something happened to them. And his uncle said, yes. And my great-grandpa looked at me and he said it took a long, long time for me to figure out what that was. And then my great-grandpa said, do you want to get some Frida de Bosco? That was his favorite dessert. It's like um, berries and powdered sugar and this delicious tart. It was so good. But when my great-grandpa told me that story, all that I could think about was what I would see in the shoebox. And I thought it wouldn't work on me because the thing that I loved most of all, the place that I loved was right there. We will return in a moment. Music from the Orbiting Human Circus is being released by Merge Records throughout the season. Listen to the full vocal version of Into the River Thames out now on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Bandcamp, and more.
We are making full-quality downloads of this and every episode available on Patreon, so you can catch all of the detail and hear the episodes as they're truly meant to be heard. Become a friend of the Orbiting Human Circus on Patreon to get them today at patreon.com slash orbitinghumancircus. That's patreon.com slash orbitinghumancircus. I've come back. You know he couldn't possibly carry this show without me. And the firefly in the janitor's hand lights up, but though he stares at it, he does not see it. Because we return to the janitor, high on the girders near the top of the Eiffel Tower, as we left him, in mid-thought. He'd been saying... But when my great-grandpa told me that story, all that I could think about was what I would see in the shoebox. And I thought it wouldn't work on me because the thing that I loved most of all, the place that I loved was right there. And you were ready to ask him to keep you. What happened? The janitor staggers. He slips. Steady yourself. You're out on the girders. His eyes widen. He told us to picture the thing that you love. The janitor's eyes snap shut. He's in a theater. Hmm. In the audience. He's trained fireflies. <sighs> That's right. My great-grandfather had told everybody that he'd trained fireflies. It's his new show. It's his opening night. He's, it's really late. He's let me stay up. I'm like the only kid in Paris allowed to stay up late enough to go. He let me be out in the audience for it. I was out in the house. They're bringing in these massive crates. They've turned the lights down. And they let all the fireflies fly out into the theater. There was thousands of them. I can't believe it. It gets all dark. And everything's quiet. The janitor's great-grandfather raises his hands in the air as if he were conducting an orchestra. It's pitch black. All the fireflies have stopped lighting up. And the moment he brings his hands down... They're lighting up all over the theater like hundreds of strings of random Christmas lights. Wow. And then his great-grandfather raised his arms again. The whole theater goes dark. He made a special request. He asked us to picture the thing that we love. And I'm laughing because all I can picture is this. In the dark, you can see he's bringing his hand down. He says, now. All the fireflies all over the audience. They're making pictures. They're lighting up. They're, they're forming constellations over people's heads. They're all over the theater everywhere. They're just staying lit and making these pictures and they're spelling out words. It's over a person. Like oh my god, it's the thing that they love. It's the thing they were concentrating on. You can see it on their faces. Like you can see the person looking up. Oh, if some of them are even words. <laughs> the fireflies made constellations of the things that people love over the people that love them. Beautiful. And we all saw it. And my great-grandpa raised up his arm. Everything goes dark. And the fireflies scatter. Nobody breathed. And my great-grandpa lowered his arm. And I noticed this, this darkness like over my head. And they were right above me. And my great-grandpa says, now. And they all light up. Suddenly. Over me. And it was a word. 
and it was a lorry. And, and I started blushing and everybody's looking at me and I, I run through people, I run out of the theater. The young janitor ran out onto the sidewalk, colliding with a cotton candy vendor who about to set up shop was pushing his cart into place, knocking him and his cart to the ground. The vendor, who hadn't seen the boy, assumed himself at fault and offered the crying young man some cotton candy, which the janitor then took. I really loved cotton candy. I, I like cotton candy. Which he then dropped because he saw fireflies. Hundreds of them. Running out, he had left the door of the theater open, and his great-grandfather's trained fireflies had spilled out into the night. Spinning around, they were everywhere he looked. He desperately tried to catch them. He makes a dive for one, just missing it. Taking off in pursuit of it, he chases it across the street. He's got it! Clutching it between his two cupped hands, he realizes he needs something to put them in. But as the janitor looks wildly around for something to use, he sees that most of them have already flown off. It's too late. Just then, the janitor felt a hand on his shoulder. It was his great-grandfather. He had left the stage. He had left the theater. Everything is over. Did you look at him? I didn't want to see the look that I had seen on my mom and stepdad's face on his face. Did you look at him? I ran past him. I ran off into Paris. Leave me alone. And out on the girders of the Eiffel Tower, the janitor snaps himself out of the memory. He doesn't want to remember any more. Watching a person try not to remember is a funny thing. It's kind of like trying not to sneeze. It doesn't work for long, and in the meantime, they make funny faces. The janitor glances at his opened hands. He's uncupped them without realizing it, and the firefly's gone off. And looking around to see where it went, he notices something on the ground far below, moving towards the tower. It's Coco. The janitor watches the form for a moment, and then climbs down and takes the elevator to the base of the tower. And once down, he hides outside of the ticket booth. Coco emerges from it, goes into the tower, and the janitor follows. You see, right now, the janitor could use Coco's company, but he's unsure if Coco could use his. What are you doing? I'm gonna follow him, and I'll let him see me bit by bit. That's not how people make up. It's not going to work. Well, the janitor heads off in pursuit of Coco hiding carefully, but several flights up, the old man stops. Has he heard the janitor? It's a bad sign. Normally he would play along. The janitor creeps up to the landing where the old man has stopped, but Coco is turned away from him. He's hiding something on the ridge beneath the banister. He tucks it in the crevice and Whatever it is, the janitor can't see. Coco turns around. The janitor ducks back around the corner. And Coco doesn't see him and continues up the stairs. The janitor tiptoes up to the spot Coco just left. He reaches beneath the banister and comes out with a key. 
Coco has hidden a key. This is all very strange. Forgetting the chase, the janitor sits down on the steps and stares at the key he's now holding. He's never seen it before, but... Uh-oh, uh the janitor is making those trying-not-to-remember faces again. And it's not working. He clearly has. I had the key to my... I had the key to my great-grandfather's house. You know, I... You know, the night of the fireflies. I, I tried to sleep on the street. But I... But I got too cold. And I had the key to his apartment. And so I... I let myself in and... I hid and I slept. And then when I woke up, I left again. And I started doing that. But what good was hiding from him? He knew I was there. Yes, that's all he knew. But there was so much more you could have let him know. He wrote my parents. Well, what else could he do? You told him to leave you alone. It's not everyone who can play hide-and-seek. He hears a sound coming not from above but below. Suddenly the janitor remembers he'd been following Coco. How long had he been standing there? It's the tower door opening, and footsteps. What was Coco doing? He's still got Coco's key. He, he puts it back and quietly runs up to the elevator. It's there. He takes it down and makes his way back to the foot of the stairs. He hears Coco a couple of flights up, takes off after him, and like a redo in a children's game, he finds himself back where he was, following Coco again, who stops at that landing again. The janitor creeps up, peeks around the corner. <gasps> it's not Coco! The janitor's eyes widen. The expression on his face is difficult to read. It shows surprise, but also excitement. His face is flush. Whoever it is takes the key and heads upstairs. The janitor follows, being incredibly careful not to be seen or heard. They reach the upper deck, and out they go. The janitor follows a little more, but then stops. Near the top of the Eiffel Tower, just above the janitor's closet, there is, in fact, a tiny apartment. This was Eiffel's apartment where the architect would entertain in the early days of the tower's opening. The janitor hears the key go into its lock and the door open. He peeks around the corner. There is golden light spilling out from the circular window in the apartment's door. Tourists are allowed to peek through this window to see a beautifully appointed apartment with exquisite furnishings, woodwork, and a small and elegant upright piano. It is the janitor who peeks through this circular window now and sees this piano as a youthfully timid-looking ticket booth clerk sits down at it. Oh, the one he'd seen speaking to Coco. The janitor makes his way hurriedly back down to his closet. He enters and glances curiously at his stove. And sitting on the edge of his cot, he catches his face reflected in the many hand saws hanging from his closet wall. 
These are his only mirror. The janitor doesn't like what he sees in them, and avoids them, much like he does his past. But they keep catching his reflection. It feels almost as if they're angling themselves to do so. And there are a lot of them. It's making him crazy. And he can't help imagining the saws leaping off the wall, forcing him to look in them. There are times that having an excellent imagination is not an advantage. And the saws creep closer. So, did you ever figure out what was in those shoeboxes your great-grandfather's uncle sent those people away with? You have a fascinating sense of timing. I just thought it was an interesting story. And the saws creep closer. Yeah, it's the saws creep closer part that I'm kind of... And music begins coming out of the janitor's stove. Its chimney pipe is connected to the heating duct leading to Eiffel's apartment. And the saws, who now have the janitor surrounded, push a shoebox full of cans of polish off a shelf, spilling its contents out. The janitor picks it up. So, what was really in the shoeboxes? You're all trying to make me do this. You said that it would not work on you, but it would work on you now. Do I have to? What was the one memory you woke up on the Eiffel Tower with? It was when great-grandpa hypnotized all Paris. It was my time with him. And you still don't have the guts to remember how it ended. And the janitor looks into the shoebox in his hand. What do you see? The janitor's eyes snap shut. That my great-grandpa knew where I was hiding all along. I was in a pantry. He said he wanted to respect my wishes. He came knocking. He told me that he wrote my parents and that they're going to come. I said it was because of the fireflies. I told him I wasn't thinking of Alari. I really wasn't thinking of anything. That's why I ran out. He asked me if it was a constellation above my head. I said, you saw. Everybody saw. And then he told me the secret. There were no fireflies. Each of us saw it all for ourselves. And everybody saw their own. And they were the only ones who saw it. And then he asked me if Olari was another boy. I said yes. He said, I'd like to meet him someday. And the next night he took me out and he hypnotized all Paris.
The Orbiting Human Circus in Naughty Till New Year's is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Night Vale Presents. Episode 8 featured Drew Callender, Harrison Beckwith, and Julian Coster. It was written and directed by Julian and further workshopped with the cast and crew of The Orbiting Human Circus and produced by Christy Gressman. With musical composition and arrangement by Thomas Hughes, music by The Music Tapes, piano by Andy Lauer, and Romika and North The Singing Saws, Encouraged to Sing by Julian. Lead editor Grant Stewart, editor Janelle Yee, and assistant editors Emily Marinoff and Jeff Tobias with Julian. Sound design by Jonathan Siri Mose, Foley by John Ringhofer, and lathe cutting by Steve Espinola. Engineering by Vincent Cascione, and additional production and mixing by Will Stanton. For more information and full credits, go to orbitinghumancircus.com.